Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So last week's text left us looking up at the stars with Abraham, trusting that God's promise is still true. This morning's text brings us to Abraham and Sarah's grandchild, Jacob, and his sons, one of whom is Joseph. So I invite you to listen as I read selected verses from Genesis chapter 37. Together, let us listen for the word of God. Jacob lived in the land of Canaan, where his father Isaac was an immigrant. This is the account of Jacob's descendants. Joseph was 17 years old and tended the flock with his brothers. While he was helping the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, Joseph told their father unflattering things about them. Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was born when Jacob was old. Jacob had made for him a long robe. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of his brothers, they hated him and could not even talk nicely to him. Joseph had a dream and told it to his brothers, which made them hate him even more. He said, listen to this dream I had. When we were binding stalks of grain in the field, my stalk got up and stood upright, while your stalks gathered around it and bowed down to my stalk. His brothers said to him, will you really be our king and rule over us? So they hated him even more because of the dreams he told them. One day when the older brothers were away tending their flocks, Jacob sent Joseph to find them. They saw Joseph in the distance before he got close to them and they plotted to kill him. The brothers said to each other, here comes the big dreamer. Come on now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and we'll say a wild animal devoured him. Then we will see what becomes of his dreams. When Reuben heard what they said, he saved him from them, telling them, let's not take his life. Reuben said to them, don't spill his blood. Throw him into this desert cistern, but don't lay a hand on him. He intended to save Joseph from them and take him back to his father. When Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped off Joseph's long robe, took him and threw him into the cistern, an empty cistern with no water in it. When they sat down to eat, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with camels carrying resins on their way down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what do we gain if we kill our brother and hide his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let's not harm him because he is our brother. He's family. His brothers agreed. 
When some Midianite traders passed by, they pulled Joseph up out of the cistern. They sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they brought Joseph to Egypt. His brothers took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a male goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the long robe, brought it to their father, and said, We found this. See if it's your son's robe or not. Jacob recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. A wild animal has devoured him. Joseph must have been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put a simple mourning cloth around his waist, and mourned for his son for many days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You're invited to pause for a moment to pray or reflect on the text. Amen. So according to the calendar, the seasons officially changed this past week. We who live in the Northern Hemisphere are now officially in autumn. So that means pumpkins, mums, football, sort of, longer nights and shorter days. And every two years, it also means election season is reaching its height. And this year, that height is unlike any in recent memory. I'm not sure about your neighborhood, but in mine, campaign signs and banners seem to spring up overnight like mushrooms. I see more of them each morning when I go out for a run. And I find myself wondering how neighbors with opposing signs in their adjoining yards get along over the course of the week. Do they smile and wave? Do they water each other's plants or check on each other's cats when they go away for a night? And will they on November 4th or later? As a child, I adored my neighbors, especially the older girls. They were so much older. They were eight. I was like four. And they, they would let me tag along, and those were some of my happiest memories. Anna Grace obligingly carried me when I was terrified about stepping on cicadas that covered the ground. And one fall afternoon, she and Sarah even taught me how to do a cartwheel. Not sure I can still do it, but I do remember learning. I thought they hung the moon, and those relationships shaped how I viewed the world. So much so that when I watched the inauguration of Jimmy Carter, I wondered aloud whether Ford's children, President Ford's children, would babysit for Carters at some point since the Carter family was new to the neighborhood. I remember my mom chuckling a bit and saying that she doubted it. Of course, even then, political opponents did not tend to be chummy enough to swap recipes or babysit or teach each other cartwheels, but I don't get the impression that they hated each other. Now, Joseph and his brothers are not neighbors, not in the sense 
like we think of. They are family, and the writer of Genesis makes it very clear. The brothers hate Joseph. That's a word I don't like to use, especially when it's about a human being, but there's no prettier word in Hebrew. There's no dodging it. They hate him. Enough to consider killing him and flinging him into a pit. Enough to break their elderly father's heart. That is some serious hatred. Now, of course, they do not wind up killing him in the end. They do, however, fling him into a pit and then sell him into slavery. Not exactly the kindest or or most brotherly of actions. But it's almost as though they don't really see him as their brother, not in their heart of hearts anyway. They refer to him with a sneer as that big dreamer. Now, Reuben has qualms and tries to talk them out of their plan, and Judah also steers the others from the worst-case scenario. But no one, no one raises the possibility that they're not thinking straight. No one wonders aloud if perhaps their hatred of Joseph has gotten the best of them. No one fully presses pause and asks what has brought them to this point. But we, thousands of years later, we can pause. We can see all that has gotten them to this point, all that has gotten them here. Now, I don't know about you, but Joseph is not someone I'd want to hang out with either, truth be told. He's a brat and a tattletale. He insufferably basks in his father's adoration and never once seems to feel any embarrassment over the doting or that fancy coat. We know that Joseph and Benjamin are the youngest of the bunch, the sons of Rachel, the woman Jacob wanted to marry in the first place. Rachel is Jacob's first choice, and it appears that Joseph and Benjamin are too. That kind of preferential treatment leaves a mark. But in case we forget, Jacob benefited from preferential treatment too. His mother, Rebecca, helped him wrangle a blessing out from under Isaac's and Esau's noses. So he apparently sees no problem with playing favorites. He cannot see the damage it does. He cannot fathom the hatred and anger it engenders. He does not anticipate the grief it will cause him and everyone he loves. He does not foresee the ways it will rip at the fabric of the family, the ways it will foster a loathing that leads his sons to view one another as less than human, less than brothers. That level of hatred frightens me because I do not believe it rears its ugly head in ancient scripture alone. Hatred that strong is a gut punch because we can imagine how it feels, or at least I can. Our nation is swimming in a deep hatred sea right now, and honestly, the sea is winning. We struggle to see others as our brothers and sisters, and we are so awfully quick to demonize and discard. In light of recent events, several black friends have wondered aloud if they are disposable. 
if their lives do in fact matter to the rest of us. Now, it's tempting to say, and I've heard folks say it, it's tempting to say they're overreacting, that of course their lives matter, but if we pause to see things from their perspective, to listen to their pain and their heartbreak, we just might begin to understand. They are not simply others. They are our brothers and sisters, and they are in deep, genuine agony. And there are others who are suffering too. Men, women, and children in Appalachia, in Harrisburg, and elsewhere who struggle with poverty, hunger, and addiction. Do their lives matter less than ours? Of course not. Not one of us would say out loud that we believe that. But they are suffering, and we are tempted not to pay attention. And that matters. And no matter who we plan to vote for in November, it is safe to say we are all tempted to write them off, even if them means something different to each and every one of us. They, whoever they are, are not numbers or a subgroup or simply statistics. They are my siblings. No matter how much I dislike them or they dislike me, No matter if I cannot fathom why they believe what they believe. No matter if I make their hair stand on end. They are my siblings. Period. But the tattling and the taunting and the special treatment and the coat all make it very hard to love Joseph. And the rhetoric... The finger pointing and the anger over being bound up and locked down by a global pandemic for more than six months all make it very hard for us to love each other right now. Nadia Boltz Weber, the tattooed, outspoken Lutheran pastor, offers a public prayer every Sunday. And last week she wrote... God of all beings, a lot of us feel less safe than we did a few days ago. And a few days ago, we weren't feeling that secure to begin with. Help us draw upon you, our divine source, when what we have just isn't enough to get through the day. She goes on and says, a lot of us are grieving. Actually, all of us are grieving, lost friends, lost kin, lost homes, lost income, lost connection to others, lost health. Help us not also lose hope. We can lose a lot and still survive, but not that. And then in the middle, she adds parentheses and adds a personal note, and she says, my fear is turning to anger. And I'm afraid that my anger can turn so easily to hate. And hate is the thing I say I'm against. Turn me away from hate. My heart can't take that kind of bitterness because I need it to give and to receive love. Remind me that my heart is spoken for. Remind me that my heart is spoken for. When meanness, pettiness, and callousness seem to rule the day, when voices bully and berate and shame and ridicule and belittle those they disagree with, 
I get angry. And I confess that I too fear that my anger will turn into hate. I need someone somewhere to help me press pause, to help me remember that my heart is already spoken for. This past week, when I asked some former teachers how they responded to tattletales in the classroom, one of you said that you would ask the tattler to say something nice about the person she was tattling on before she gave her report. And you said that that simple act of pausing and thinking about the other student in a positive way quite often diffused the situation and changed the narrative. I wonder what that would look like if we tried that ourselves. Could that simple pause, that shift of perspective begin to stem the tide of hatred? Because in case we forget, our hearts are spoken for too. In Jesus Christ, we have been made new, given life abundant and made free, not simply for our own sake, but for the sake of the world including the brats, the tattletales, and the ones whose campaign signs make our teeth clench. The Joseph story winds up with Joseph's dreams saving his own family, including those brothers, along with entire nations from famine. And after their father, Jacob, dies, the brothers worry that Joseph will take his revenge on them. So they come to him and say that their father told them to seek Joseph's forgiveness. And Joseph replies, You planned something bad for me, but God has produced something good from it. In order to save the lives of many people, just as he's doing today. So friends, there's hope. God does not fling Joseph into the pit, nor does God sell Joseph into slavery. We cannot blame God for the ways we hurt one another or for the ways we discount one another. The hatred, the disdain, and the hurt are not part of God's plan. That's all on us. However, I am convinced that God can bring good out of anything and redeem the very worst in us, not simply for our sake, but for the sake of God's saving work in the world. Our hearts are spoken for, after all, not because of who we are, but because of who God is and what God does in Jesus Christ. So maybe we who bear Christ's name can find a way to press pause and take a moment to offer a kind word about that neighbor who sees the world so drastically differently from us and to wonder with a bit of grace what breaks the heart of the stranger we do not understand. And maybe in his baffling, gracious way, God can remind us that hatred does not have the final claim on us, that our hearts ultimately belong to the one who saves us from the pit, too. 
We may not wind up teaching one another how to do a cartwheel. But I am convinced that God can and will still produce something good from us too. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.